Mooey's sick them before they get up to preach. You don't want to have to raise Lazarus to preach to him. And that gets us going. I'm going to ask you to open your songbooks. Kind of tripped you up on that one. Open your songbooks to number 577. And uh, we're going to sing that in just a moment. That was not something we planned during the week, but on the drive-in, it's one that came to me uh, as uh, something special. I appreciated the communion devotional this morning, and uh, as I was examining myself, especially during the cup, I remembered uh, a prayer sung by Wayne Watson probably 30 years ago, and, uh, and I want to share it with you because... This is really where we're going in this series of lessons from Macedonian maturity. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and this will be our our prayer of beginning. Heavenly Father, I'll be a friend to you. Move as the Spirit moves. Dance unrestrained with joy or welcome crying eyes. Bless as I have been blessed, hunger for righteousness, love all the things you love, and hate what you despise. Oh God, let what breaks your heart, likewise to me impart sadness and sympathy, yet with hope not too far removed. And Lord, what brings a smile to you? Make my heart lighter too. May I hate all that you despise and love the things you love. And all that brings me pleasure here, may it please you, Lord, above. Hate all that you despise and love the things you love. We ask this to be true in us as the Spirit conforms us to Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. It's been a busy uh, three weeks, but I'm glad to be back with you. But time is growing short, and that's a good thing. That's why I came here in the first place, to work myself out of a job. And uh, uh, we we spent uh, the 5th to the 19th in China. It was not uh, a restful trip, but it was a good time to celebrate our 40th anniversary We got home last Sunday night. We began moving my parents into a retirement center from Abilene to Fort Worth on Wednesday. So if you're tired, I want you to know I'm tired. Uh, uh, T-A-I-R-E-D. Tired. I'm tired. But I know some of you are too. And some of your tired has to do with concerns for family like concerns my brothers and I have had. Some of your concerns have to do with finances because of the economy. And others are concerned about what's going on in our country. And others are concerned about the culture and its drift from the things of God. There's a lot of things on our hearts. But we can't fix those things. But the one thing we can deal with is us. The person we see in the mirror. We can choose to align our compass by the culture, or we can choose to align our compass by the Creator. Those are the only two choices. 
And so we're beginning a focus <clears throat> on spending some time with Paul in the School of Macedonian Maturity. Uh, this is a series uh, that I first preached in, at Hillcrest, but first awakened to 36 years ago, and I'll tell you a little about that story later. Uh, I hope it's a blessing to you. It comes out of Acts 16 and 17 and out of the book of Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. Those are the churches of Macedonia. But it's a challenging series. It's one that will not let us rest on our laurels. And I'm not sure what laurels are, but it won't let, let us rest on our backside no matter what our age is because of the call of the Spirit to conform us to Jesus. So I hope you're blessed by it. To prepare us for this series, and especially today's message, I'm going to ask you to, to sing with me, <clears throat> Father, hear the prayer we offer. I'm in a bit of a nostalgic mood, and you'll understand a little bit of that as we go through the message today. This was sung at our wedding. It was a song that had become <clears throat> a prayer that we had, Don and I had, as we dealt with the closing years of my father's life. And we wanted this to be what our life was about. This is the sermon. 777. That'd help, wouldn't it? Ask you to pick up these songbooks that are good for uh, weightlifting and uh, not give you the number. That doesn't help anybody out. Number 777. <clears throat> and I'm a little horse, and I'm not a song leader, uh, so... I hope Tony's mic is on. He's going to help me out a little bit. Father, hear the prayer we offer. Nor for ease that prayer shall be. But for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously. Not forever by still waters Would we idly quiet stay But would smite the living fountains From the rocks along our way Be our strength in hours of weakness in our wanderings be our guide Through endeavor, failure, danger Father, be Thou at our side Let our path be bright or dreary Storm or sunshine be our share. May our hope in world unweary make thy work our ceaseless prayer. Amen. That is not an easy song to live up to. 
but it is our call, and we're going to be focused on that as we look into Acts 16 this morning. I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles open to Acts 16. So I, I don't know if I'll bring up my iPad or not. I may, I may not. I came up here with more stuff than I normally do. But really, from now on, you just need your little outline in your Bible, and that'll do us great. We begin this series, and uh, I hope it worked. Can you advance the first one for me, and let's see if it can get us going. In Acts 16, verses 6 through 10, Paul has picked up Timothy to join the team. Silas is now working with Paul. Along the way, Luke is going to join them. And we pick up the story in Acts 16 and verse 6. Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, that's in what we'd call Turkey today, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of the Lord would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia, and they went down to Troas. Here's the focus. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up and got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to the people there. All right, to give you some sense, I know you can't see much of the map, but in the top right corner you see Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Lycia. That's what we call Turkey. Across the way you'll see Achaia and Macedonia. That's what we now call Greece. When we're talking about Macedonia, we're not talking about Macedonia today. That's a little bit different place. But we're talking about northern Greece. And Paul receives this vision. And that vision is going to take him from Troas, which is considered Asia, into Europe, which includes Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. So those are the cities. And I wanted to give you some context because it doesn't make any sense if you can't put those together. 36 years ago, almost to the day, my father was in the last months of his life. So I took a a Sunday off from the church in Elgin. Donna and I went to Abilene. It was going to be our last visit to see my folks because Donna was as they say, great with child. She was reaching that point where it wouldn't be wise to travel. And, uh, and plus she was teaching and worn out. And we were excited about the birth of our first child and wanted to see my mom and dad. Same house I moved my mom from this week was the house where my father would die in September 36 years ago. So we had a Sunday off, and we went to church with my mom, my brothers, and, and we went to Bible class. And in the Bible class, the subject was the will of God. How do you know the will of God? How do you know you're living in the will of God? And so the teacher, like a good teacher will do, kind of threw a question out. Does, did, how do you know you're living in the will of God? 
do any of you have a story or two that kind of talks about how you dealt with living in the will of God? And so a young lady who is a daughter of a preacher spoke up and said, right before my last year of high school, my dad came to our family and asked us to all pray on whether or not it would be wise for us if God was calling us to move to a new place to preach. Now, that's an existential reality right now for our search team members because they're dealing with four or five families. They're having to ask that same question right now because it's a big decision. How do we know the will of God? Because we don't want somebody to decide to come preach here We want them to feel called by God to partner with this church. That's what you want, too, I hope. Well, this family began to pray. This was right before her senior year of high school. But when they prayed about it, they all felt very, very convicted that God called them to move to this place, even though this young lady didn't want to have to move because it was right before the end of her senior year. So she stayed behind with the family while her family moved. She finished her year of high school and then went to ACU, where she went to school, got married, and that's why she was in the young marriage class. And she said, but the problem was, almost immediately when my, my family moved, bad things began to happen. Several of the church leaders gave my dad problems from the word go and let him know they didn't want him there. And people began to talk and spread rumors and and gossip about things that were simply untrue. And she said, it seemed clear when we left to go to that place that that was God's will. But we decided that we must have misread God's will for us to move since we had problems almost from the very beginning. But when I was in college at ACU, this girl continued, my dad was asked to go to a smaller church he decided that was the Lord's will. They moved there. That church has grown. It's grown mightily. And my father and my mom are gloriously thrilled with this new place. So obviously, it wasn't the will of God that we moved to the first place, but it was his will that we moved to the second place. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But I've been wrestling for nine and a half years. While my dad, a good man, an elder, a good father, he was imperfect, but he was a good father, why God wouldn't answer our prayers to heal him. And so I'd wrestle a long time with the will of God. And to be honest, I'd spend the next three or four years mad at God and wrestling through all this stuff while I was trying to preach. So something about her story if I can say this in church, irritated the snot out of me. It just irritated me. And I couldn't figure out why. Because I love kids that grow up in ministry. Uh, we had, have had an incredibly glorious experience in ministry. You know, a wonderful little church that grew crazy in Elgin. A church in Austin that blew the doors off and grew to be a big church and sent out all these missionaries. I, in, 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 in a big church in Abilene. But my kids have had to put up with some awful things said about me by church members that were absolutely untrue. 
And that was having a great experience. So I heard for ministers when people gossip, when uh, uh, lunch at Sunday is fricasseed preacher and stir-fried youth minister and uh, salad tossed mightily with the uh, children's minister. I, I, I understand those pains. But it still irritated me. I couldn't figure out why. So I started thinking and started thinking. The more I thought, the more I remembered this call. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And I began to think about Paul's ministry in Macedonia. Now, when we go visit places, ministers, spouses all understand this. They don't want their spouse to speak up in church. They'd kind of like to go to church just one Sunday every once in a while because ministers and elders and secretaries in churches don't ever get to go to church because they are always busy serving the church and doing stuff. So uh, when we go visit, my wife wanted me to keep quiet. And that was true even at a young age. And so I was trying to keep quiet. And this thing just kept percolating in me. And the more I thought about that, I said, well, using her logic... Had Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke been wrong about the call and the will of God? Because you notice that Paul received the vision and then it said, we, in other words, he consulted Luke and Timothy and, and Silas, we determined, we concluded that the Spirit called us to go there. Had they been wrong? Because I want to remind you about this journey from Troas down at the Right middle of the screen, they went up to Neapolis, which is the gateway city, to Philippi. Philippi is an important city. Well, this is what happened in Philippi. The crowd joined in attacking Paul, Timothy, Silas. The magistrates tore their garments off. They were so upset. They beat them with rods. They inflicted them with many blows. They didn't just throw them in prison. They threw them in the inner, ugliest, stinkiest, no place to go to the bathroom part of the, the prison and put them in stocks. Locked tight. Multiple doors. That doesn't sound like very much fun, does it? Had it not been the will of God for them to go to Macedonia? Hmm. Well, after Philippi, they went down, they took I-20. And they went from, from Philippi to Thessalonica. The only difference between the Ignatian Way and I-20 is the Ignatian Way still has portions that you can still walk on. Everybody here knows between here and Abilene, I-20 has is, is never been completed at any time. There's always something they're working on. There's always something messed up. And there's always a record to when you're in a hurry. Well, they go down the Ignatian Way to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, that's a pretty good town. So what happened in Thessalonica? Well, three Sabbaths, Paul proclaims in the synagogue about Jesus. But before long, they got a rabble together, a bunch of thugs. They formed a mob. mob and they set the city in an uproar. And then they accused these guys of insurrection and treason, believing in another Lord besides Caesar. And so the, the authorities were so disturbed, they ran Paul and the missionary contingent out of town. And Jason, a brand new Christian, had to post bond with the, the legal authorities that said Paul wouldn't come back for a year or two. 
Well, that doesn't seem like a lot of fun. Doesn't seem like it must have been the will of God if you're determining it based on things going well. Well, from Thessalonica, they go to Berea. Well, you know what, in, what Berea was? Any of you been to Merkel, Texas? <laughs> Merkel, Texas is a suburb of Abilene. And it has a Dairy Queen like every city in Texas does. And it has a little steakhouse and it's a speed trap on I-20. Berea would make Gladewater look like a metropolis. It was a bump on the road. Guess what happened in Berea? They got run out of town again. They stirred up the crowds. The brothers immediately sent Paul on his way because they were afraid of his life. Okay, so Philippi, beaten, thrown in jail, run out of town. Thessalonica, four or five weeks, run out of town. Berea, Merkel, get run out of town. So where does he go next? Well, he goes south down to Athens at the bottom of the Greece Peninsula. And in Athens, he had that great sermon. You remember that great sermon on Mars Hill? Or actually, it was in front of Mars Hill at the Areopagus. Mars Hill is this brain-looking slab of granite, and in front of it was the Areopagus, and you could speak and everybody hear you because the sound would just jump off that granite block. And he spoke there. And while we think it's a great sermon, a lot of the folks in Athens that thought they were something important and super smart laughed at him because he talked about the resurrection. And Paul said, I went from Athens to Corinth and joined you in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So Philippi run out of town and beaten. Thessalonica run out of town and beaten or uh, run out of town. Then he goes to Merkel, Berea, run out of town there. He goes to Athens. He gets laughed out of town and leaves with his tail tucked between his legs, devastated because he's been rejected. And he goes to Corinth. Now, I don't know a single preacher that doesn't love the church at Corinth. Because you don't even need a whole Bible to preach. All you need are First and Second Corinthians. That was the worst church plant in the history of the universe for the first year or two. I mean, they were getting drunk in communion. He had to address incest in the church openly, in the letter. He had to address all sorts of sexual immorality. He had to address all sorts of problems. So preachers love it because you got lots of preaching material, but it was a mess of a church. So much so that this is how he talked about it. He said, I couldn't talk to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh and as infants in Christ. So two and a half to three years after receiving the Macedonian call, Paul had to wonder, had he gotten a bad hero sandwich? You know, when he was in the city at Troas, had he gotten some bad baklava for dessert and this indigestion gave him this vision to go to Macedonia because it looks like a total disaster. And using this young lady's theory on knowing the will of God, and it must not be God's will because things are tough, then Paul, Luke, and Silas, Timothy, they blew it. 
They misread it completely. In fact, Paul's vision seemed more like a nightmare than a call of God. I mean, how much whooping does a preacher need to know he's messed up? Right? But I don't think he messed up. After a few more years had passed, an interesting thing happened. Thessalonica and Philippi become two of Paul's most cherished churches. In fact, I think if you look deep enough, you find out they were his two favorite churches. A lot of you probably feel that way too because you've read the book of Philippians a bunch. There's good stuff in there. But it's tender stuff. Even when he's in their face, it's tender stuff. Thessalonians, he he talks about loving them. I mean, here's a single guy telling folks he loves them like a mother nursing her baby. Now imagine the audacity of that. But he felt so tenderly about them. And he held them up as an example to other churches for their generosity to the church in Jerusalem. And those were the only two churches we know he let support his mission efforts. So what I want us to hear is something pretty important. You know, something had irritated me about this young lady's story. And when I walked through all this, the light came on. The problem was, is I'd been thinking about it 10 or 12 minutes, and then I raised my hand in that class and said, I I, want to talk about what she said. I had no idea where the rest of the class was. Donna just ducked her head and prayed for Jesus to come before I talked. I'm I'm not exaggerating. And then I shared that. And I said, I don't know in the moment how to know I'm in the will of God unless I'm directly obeying a commandment of Jesus. Because everything else is too much a mystery. But let's think about a couple of things. Did your daddy need to go through those difficult experiences to prepare him for the church that came later? Could it be that the struggles in that place prepared him for what he needed to be used by the Lord to help this other church do the great work of God that he's doing there now? Secondly, would that good church opportunity have ever opened up to you Or would he have even thought about going to a church so much smaller if he hadn't experienced the oops-tunity of that messy church situation y'all lived through? And I tried to say, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I don't know, but I do know that there's a principle that entrepreneurs use. It's called the corridor principle, and it's not really an entrepreneurial principle. It's a God principle. And the corridor principle basically says for an entrepreneur to succeed, he's going to fail six or seven times. That's the average for successful entrepreneurs. Don't believe it? Go ask Michael Dell or Bill Gates. They've got a history of failures. But they go down a corridor pursuing a dream and it dead ends, but there's a door out of that corridor. And they take this corridor over here and it leaves them over here and it introduces them to these people. And then they 
run to the end of the hall and then they find another one and they go down this corridor and it's a dead end. And then they go all the way back over here to this corridor and then they go down a corridor over here and all of a sudden they're an instant success. Because that's how we look at them. But without all those experiences, without building the networking, without taking the lumps, without growing in wisdom, through all those difficulties, they would have never been ready for the one that they got to. Now, what do we call the corridor principle in Christianity? We call it Romans 8, 28. Isn't that right? For God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So, what do we do with this little message in geography and Bible history to keep it from being just more titillating material in our gray matter? How do we learn from Paul's school of Macedonian maturity? Well, I want to suggest a couple of things to you to think about and pray about. Number one, because I don't, I don't want to make light, because there are people here in the middle of wrestling with big decisions, hard decisions, and they want to honor God with that. And the search team is neck deep in stuff, wrestling with decisions on which person God is calling to work in this church, and those families are wrestling with those same things. Let's remember a few things. Number one, God's will isn't determined by immediate results. Because God is looking for our obedience more than he is our convenience. Everything in our culture tells us to grab for what's convenient, what's the quick fix. But God wants our obedience. And so the first step for us to honor the will of God is to obey. To obey. There are families here that are wrestling with, do I move my family because job opportunities have been squashed down so much because of the oil industry? And, you know, every time we think it may escape this, this mess, uh, gas will go up a little bit and then it comes back down. So what do we do? That's a hard decision. But what's the first step to obedience? What's going to be best for our family? Those are hard questions. Number two, God is more concerned about developing our character than providing for our comfort. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture that calls us to be nice. That's one misnomer. Being nice is never a command. We're to be gracious and we're to be kind and we're to be compassionate Secondly, there's never a command that says, do what's comfortable. There's never a promise that God is going to make us comfortable. He promises us the peace that passes understanding in the midst of the storm, but he doesn't work for our comfort. Do you know how I know? You told me that you believe that today in communion. Isn't that right? You told me today that you believe that God's more interested in your character than your comfort. 
Because you call Jesus Lord when you took communion today. And you called him your hero and your savior. And what did Jesus pray? Three times in the garden, let this cup pass from me. But Father, not my will, but your will be done. I don't want to go through this. And let's don't create some non-biblical thing that Jesus was concerned about going to the cross and God turning his back on him and not having anything to do with him because of sin. That's a human creation. Jesus says twice, the Father will not abandon me through this upcoming journey. Paul says, God did not abandon his son to decay in the midst of sin. God doesn't leave us when we sin. We feel alone. We can cry, God, where are you in this? Why have you forsaken me? But God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus didn't want to go through the cross because of the shame and because of the horror. Shame primarily because it meant he was accursed by God in the eyes of everybody that saw him naked on that tree because of what Deuteronomy said. But Jesus said, God, I want to be honorable before you and do your will, whether it means comfort or not. Number three, God's greatest recognizable blessings often come after we have been faithful through the storm. Some of you are in a storm. I mean, we got families here that are dealing with, with grief in multiple generations. We've got folks that have spouses that have pain that's almost unbearable or challenges that are very difficult to manage. Some are worried about kids that are not faithful to Jesus. Others are worried about parents who aren't faithful to Jesus. There's hard stuff out there. So what do we do? We recognize that God calls us to obey. We recognize that God wants us to be people of character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And God wants us to realize that he's not promising us to immediately still the storms. But he has promised to meet us in the storm and bring us his peace. Everything in our culture says grab for what is convenient. Everything in our culture says look for what is comfortable. Don't believe it? Look at the sales of tranquilizers and prescription drugs and all the, the NSAIDs, the, the things to relieve pain, all the things that we reach for to get immediate relief. And God doesn't want us to hear the call of culture to look for calm, but to find our peace in his presence. This morning, I don't want to make light of anything that you're going through. And I don't want to make it seem like I've got the answers to all your problems. I don't. Just like I tell folks, this church is not looking for a savior and a preacher, it's looking for a partner. Because there's only one savior, and that's Jesus. But I do know 
that God has promised to never leave us. That the Holy Spirit is our comforter that meets us in the middle of our most difficult situations to bring a peace that passes understanding. And I do know that God wants our character more than anything else. Because the passage that begins, God works all things together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you remember how it ends? The next verse, we don't quote it. But those that God foreknew as his children, he is going to conform to the image of his son. And if the son had to face the cross, we're going to face some too. This thing I do know, that when we pass through the storm, Jesus gets us to our destination. When we've obeyed, instead of choosing the convenient way out, we are formed into people of character, and that character matters. And I do believe that when all is said and done, God's people will find themselves in a community of folks that find joy and peace and hope. How do I know? Well, in the midst of the mess in Philippi, you have a Philippian jailer and his family, Lydia and her co-workers, become Christians. And that becomes a church that Paul repeatedly visits, even though it began in a mess. At Thessalonica, he points to them as great people. The gospel rang out from them and spread all over the world, even though they were a small group and faced persecution. And he let them support him. And I know that Corinth, and the amazing mess that they began with, a church that most churches today wouldn't even call a brother or sister church, that through the years, God fashioned them into a mighty influence for Jesus. If he can do that with that mess, he can do it with yours. So if you're wrestling with a mess, don't think you're outside of God's will. Just be willing to share your burden with other people God has placed around you as family. Don't face it alone and take the next step to honor. For some of you, that next step is simply coming down the aisle and saying, I need some help. And you may come down to the front and ask it for the, all the church, or you may go to the back and find an elder. But it's time to quit bearing your burden alone and let somebody walk with you so that you can be God's person of character and receive that peace. Others have resisted confessing Jesus as Lord and being baptized. This is a great time. That's the step you need to take. For the rest of us, it's to say, Lord, we don't ask for sunshine to be our stead. We don't always have to have bright skies. But we do ask that we will have unwavering faith to live our lives courageously knowing that you're at our side if god's not at your side or you feel like he's abandoned you or you'd like for him to be close here's your moment to take the next step as we stand and sing